0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So you, there's more music. Um, it's okay, we can do round two. Um, yeah. So we've just talked about what movie you last saw. And the reason we're talking about that is because our theme, our title for this next series is called Inclusion Writers. And this is a term that was used by actress Frances McDormand in her uh, Academy Award acceptance speech. And it's a term that's used to describe a stipulation that actors can ask for in their contract to require a certain level of diversity in a film's cast and crew. And the reason for this is for there to be more... Representation in fi- in the film industry, and now I'm not talking about the use of token characters um, that minorities usually get, like the nerdy Asian or the Russian spy. You know the ones I'm talking about. I'm talking about the use, the inclusion of characters, uh, inclusion of minorities in characters that are strong and complex. The char- these characters that are normally awarded to white people. So, and this is important because the presence of repeated portrayals, repeated stereotypical portrayals of minorities, can actually affect the way that minorities are seen in general, by the general population, but also affect how minorities see themselves. But the problem is that there aren't enough roles out there that do the work of changing how minorities are seen, or do the work of showing their stories. Has anyone heard of the actress uh, Lupus Ontiveros? She's a Latina actress who uh, was in the TV series Desperate Housewives and played the role of Eva Longoria's suspicious mother-in-law. Has anyone heard of that TV series? Otherwise, I've just really embarrassingly divulged my taste in entertainment. <laughs> anyway, so she, this, this role was actually an anomaly in the types of roles that she was cast in. Before this, in, when she first started in the entertainment industry, she was cast as a maid 150 times. That's ridiculous. 150 times a producer or a director didn't see her as being more than a maid. And so what does the church of the, or the Bible have anything to do with diversity in film? A lot. In our previous series, Her Story, we showcased women in the Bible and told their stories because women throughout the Bible play an important role in understanding the fullness of the character of God, right? And so then the same can be said of groups of minorities in the Bible. We can be introduced to new theology. We can understand God from a different perspective and we can value what everyone brings to the table. And I know right now, as I'm speaking, that sounds a lot like a really beautiful United Colors of Benetton ad. (laughs) And there might be some people sitting here right here thinking, you know, that's not really an issue today, but it is. The truth is we still struggle with this in our church and in our institutions. And so I think that it's important for us to go back in the Bible and look at the very first time in which the church made a decision to diversify their leadership and look at the events that led up to this decision. So in your Bible apps, if you can turn to Acts 6, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7. Seven leaders are chosen. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So we're in the book of Acts here in the formation of the early church. And there are two groups of people that are being talked about. We have the Hebraic Jews who are native to Israel and who speak Aramaic. And we have the Hellenistic Jews who speak Greek. Now, the Hellenists were Jews who had, in previous generations, been exiled from Israel. And so they lived in the surrounding area and they absorbed the Hellenistic culture and language while still maintaining their religious beliefs. So the Hellenists over time, Hellenistic Jews over time, uh, made their way back to Israel because of this promise of a Messiah to come and the promise of the Kingdom of Israel being restored, right? But the problem with that is that they spoke a different language to the Hebraic Jews, and so they both went to different synagogues. And their division was more than just language and culture. The Hebraic Jews spoke the holy language of Aramaic. And so there was a little bit of snobbery that they had towards the Hellenistic Jews. And as you can imagine, that would create some friction and animosity between the two groups. Can you see this here in our culture with rival sports teams or um, rival colleges, or when we talk about people that live in New Jersey? Or um, with music, when you talk about West Coast rap versus East Coast rap? Speaking of music, my husband and I have a long standing debate on who is the better boy band. So I argue that it's the Backstreet Boys, and he is all about NSYNC. Because come on, the Backstreet Boys did way better internationally. Who's with me? They're the better boy band, right? All right. <laughs> and for those of you that don't think so, whatever. Anyway, let's getting back getting back to the Bible. <laughs> Cuz that's what we're here for. So, in the early days of the church, what the church body used to do is they'd all gather their resources together in, in a kind of food kitty, and then they'd redistribute them to ensure that the ne- all the needs of the community were met. So, everyone particularly those who were in need, were fed and looked after, like the widows. And now the care of widows was particularly important because, as you know, in those days, women were cared for by their families and by their husbands. So if a woman's husband died then she, and she didn't have any adult children to care for her, then she could literally starve to death. And so the church recognized this, and you read this throughout the Bible, many verses, Um, Emphasize the care of widows. In James 1, 27, it says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Look after your orphans and widows in their distress. So this verse is talking about how there was an understanding that the most pure expression of faith and religion was in serving and caring for widows and orphans because this was a completely selfless act with little recognition or rewards. But there's a problem in the passage, right? We see that the Hellenistic Jews have pointed out that their widows have been overlooked in the distribution of food. And they say that, and that they're not being cared for. And now when you look back on the scripture that we've read, we don't read of any obvious indication that this has been done deliberately. We know that the church is growing, and with that growth, with that growth, there might be some cracks here and there. And... Groups of people might go forgotten or unnoticed, especially small minority groups. So what we see here is that there's a group of people that are already vulnerable because they are widows, but because they are minorities, they are even more marginalized. So what we see is two issues of injustices taking place here. They're intersecting here, so then we can see that This makes the Hellenistic Jews, the Hellenistic widows, much more vulnerable than the Hebraic widows. And this is evidenced by them being overlooked by the food distribution. So the apostles are faced with the need to make a decision. And they could have responded in any number of ways. They could have said, you know what, there's only a small number of them, and then just ignored it. Or they could have said, you know, these Hellenistic Jews, they don't really contribute that much into the kitty, so why should they be taking from it? Or they could have said, oh, they're not pure Jews. But they didn't do that, because as you can imagine, that might create further division between the two groups. So they could have taken on the care of the Hellenistic Jews themselves. But do you think they really have the capacity for that? In a growing church, where obviously there's some cracks there, and then, Um, on top of all their pastoral duties of prayer and teaching the word. That wasn't possible. They recognized that their hands were already full doing their own pastoral duties of prayer and teaching the word, so they understood that there was a need for a new ministry to be formed. The apostles identified their ministry as focusing on teaching and prayer, and they identified a need for the church to create a team of ministry leaders to head up the ministry of the tables, which is not a food service or waiting on tables. It's ministry of distributing food. So when you look back at the Greek translation of this text, the Greek word that was used to describe this ministry, both these ministries, was diakonia. And this was used to refer to both ministries, telling us that both these ministries were seen as important, that they were both needed, One covered the spiritual care of the church and the other covered the physical care. So diakonia is necessary for us to both grow physically and stay alive and to grow as the body of church as well as for us to spiritually mature. And so there's an understanding that there must be a partnership between teachers of the word and ministry leaders that we need each other in order for us to embrace the depth of the fullness of God. Ephesians 4:11 talks about evangelists, pastors and teachers equipping the church equipping the church body for works of service so that the body of Christ can be built up that we need to come together in unity and through this we can grow and mature. And so the apostles they see the need for this and they act quickly. And so what follows is they appoint 7 people to take on the care of the Hellenistic widows. And the 3 points can be made about the significance of this decision. Firstly, that it was done swiftly. It wasn't ignored, it wasn't swept under the rug, nor was their response, you know what, they're your people, you deal with it. They understood the importance to make this decision, and they responded to it quickly. Secondly, they didn't appoint just anybody. The apostles asked for very specific qualifications. The people that were to head up this ministry had to be wise, full of the spirit. They had to have the reputation of being faithful followers. They were essentially, they were leading a ministry, right? So that couldn't be left to just anyone. Thirdly, the apostles didn't appoint a team themselves. They handed over this important work over to them. They, by asking the Hellenistic Jews to appoint seven of their own. And we know this because of all all the seven names that I read out earlier and probably butchered, they were all Greek names. And this is significant because the apostles were engaging Hellenistic Jews to take part in the leadership of the church. They understood that the Hellenistic widows had to be cared for by people who spoke their language, who understood their culture, and also understood their specific needs. Because what if they needed baklava included in the food distribution? (laughs) So they created these positions of leadership that consisted of people from this minority group, and they saw value in this group. They commissioned them in front of the entire church and thus elevated their place. And lastly, yeah, I know I said three, but I can't count, and I know this last one is the most important one. But lastly, the fact that the apostles thought to act on this issue tells us that the early church believed that no group or individual should go unnoticed or should be discriminated against, however small or insignificant they are. Every single individual's need mattered, especially those that were marginalized. And we know that the, the decision that the apostles made was good. And it was tr- r- the right thing to do. We know this because in verse 7, it says, So the word of God spread, the number of disciples increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Instead of being divided on this issue, these two groups came together on one common cause. Their widows. They could work together, and through this act of reconciliation, the church continued to grow, the Apostles achieved their goal of spreading the Word of God and growing the church. and what they did please, what they did was pleasing to Jesus. This is what Jesus wanted them to do, and what they did was mirroring Jesus in His ministry. Jesus came to bring unity between us and God, right? to bring reconciliation between us and God. And as well as unity happening between us and the divine, a unity and reconciliation needed to happen with one another. In John 17, 20, Jesus prays, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me, that united We could come to believe that Jesus was sent by God to deliver the message that the divine is one with us, however we identified. So this wasn't, so the apostles being inclusive of the Hellenistic Jews was not a new thing. They were uniting people groups the same way that Jesus did, with Jews and Gentiles, with men and women, with slaves and free. The apostles were continuing in the ministry of Jesus by caring for outsiders and caring for those that were most vulnerable, by bringing unity and reconciliation between groups of people, and so that in unity and in community, those that were most vulnerable could see that, oh, there is a God, because where I was invisible yesterday, today I am seen, I am valued and my needs matter. This moment in church history signifies a moment in which the church saw the need for their leadership to diversify in order to best serve those that were most vulnerable in their community. And this, because of this, it brought unity between these two groups. This story shows how the early church moved initially from conflict to community And then to reconciliation. And because of this movement, the church grew rapidly. This is the progressive movement of the ministry of Jesus within humanity that we must continue today to unify and to hold space for those living in the margins, to elevate them and value what they bring to the table. Today marks the first day, marks the day that Forefront Church appoints its first minority woman pastor. It's me, <laughs> in case you didn't know. <laughs> Second service. This church and its leadership recognize the importance of my role here as a woman, as an immigrant, as a person of color, as a mother, in serving those that identified the, si- the same way and in holding space for them. Seven years ago, I moved to New York City. I was waiting for my green card. I was newlywed and newly pregnant. And I sat in the margins because there weren't many people like me in our congregation, especially in the early days when uh, Forefront Brooklyn was being launched. Um, After some time, the church hired me as their family ministry director. And I'm going to admit something that I've only recently, even just to Jonathan, just admitted that I thought the only reason that I was being hired was because I was a person of color and that I was being tokenized. I thought there couldn't possibly be a reason why they'd want to hire me because I have no formal education in children's ministry. I've never been employed by a church before. And although I'd volunteered in a number of capacities in family ministry, at Forefront Church itself, I'd only volunteered in the nursery. So I felt very ill-equipped. The church staff had to constantly affirm my place in this church. They had to affirm me that being a mother made me more equipped than anyone else on staff to minister to other mothers. That being an immigrant, being in an interracial marriage, by having mixed-race children, that made me more equipped to minister to those who identified the same way. So I went from sitting in the margins to serving those that lived in the margins. After a year, as I got more comfortable with my role, I started using my voice to advocate for the children in our ministry. I noticed that the curriculum that we used was very ethnocentric and didn't serve the multicultural makeup of our children. I also advocated for their space here during this this church service so that they could be seen and heard which is why they sit with us when we do worship in the start of every service. After some time, I was also asked to preach, and in my first sermon, I advocated for children of color and raised awareness of the school to prison pipeline that exists here in the United States. It was the first time that I realized that I could have a voice, that I could be given the space to speak about the things that bothered me as a minority, It was the first time that I realized that my perspective and my theology could contribute to understanding the wholeness of who God is. And I would have never been given that opportunity had the church thought that anything that I could contribute was irrelevant. I would have never been given that opportunity had the church thought to tokenize me for the sake of diversity and not given me the space to speak and voice my opinion and voice my perspective. I would have never been given that opportunity had I, myself, as a minority, come to believe that my perspective and anything that I brought to the table was insignificant. This story in Acts shows us that not only is it important for us to unify as people groups, but that, we, that it is biblical to include minority groups in leadership that it is biblical to recognize the needs of minorities, to minister to them and to learn from their perspective and value what they bring to the table. Woman pastor Tara Beth Leach talks about how this isn't just an issue of justice. It's not just justice critical, it's mission critical because we need everybody on board. We need everyone, including minorities, to use their unique gifts in the advancement of the kingdom of God. Otherwise, our church will continue to limp. It will continue to limp with the needs of minority groups not being met and their voices not being heard. Here at Forefront, we strive to recognize and respond to the needs of our queer community, of our families, of our mothers, and our women, and our people of color. Forefront didn't say, we've got a diverse church, and then left it at that. Forefront said, Forefront leadership particularly said, we have a diverse church and we want our leadership to reflect that. We want our our leadership to reflect the diversity in our team of deacons, in our team of elders, in our team of pastoral staff. Because diversity and inclusion has to do more than just having a multicultural church. Diversity and inclusion has to involve the changing has to involve the work of reconciliation. And the work of reconciliation involves changing power structures within this church. Austin Channing Brown, author of the book, I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness, I'm holding this up because this is a really, really good book to read. Please, everyone, get it and read it. Anyway... Um, She challenges churches to include people of color in, in conversations that surround content and direction of the church and vision of the church. She says that reconciliation is about diverting power and attention to the oppressed, toward the powerless. It's not enough to dabble at diversity and inclusion while leaving the existing authority structure in place. Reconciliation demands more. Here at Forefront, I love that we value the freedom and the revelation that comes with the meaningful sharing of stories and experiences. We press into this sense of community because it brings us together towards reconciliation and towards a a new creation, one in which we can all embrace life together under the knowledge that we were created by a God that's inside every one of us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So I have some takeaway points. As Jonathan mentioned, we're currently taking deacon nominations. And I want to encourage you to think outside the box when you envision who our deacons might be. What are their gifts? What are their passions? Where do you see them growing? I encourage you to think about people whom you see that can contribute their unique perspective and their unique gifting. And I know in saying that, that there are people sitting here right now that are thinking, well, where do I fit in in all of this? Does my perspective matter if I don't identify as being part of a, of a minority group? I'm cisgendered and white. Where, where do I fit in? And to you, I say, we aren't replacing one system over another. We're not replacing patriarchy with matriarchy. We aren't replacing Western imperialism with whatever the, equivalent, the opposite equivalent would be. We aren't replacing one empire over another because we aren't empire people. We are kingdom people bringing about a new creation. New creation includes you. Bringing God's kingdom here on earth includes you as well as it includes me. So I invite you to take part in being in community in this church. I invite you to take part in small groups, to listen to stories and share yours. I invite you to take part in volunteering to make each each Sunday happen so that we can continue to hold space for every individual. I invite you to take part by being thoughtful in who you nominate as deacons. Because all of these things contribute to bringing God's desire for reconciliation amongst all of God's creation. Let us pray. Dear God, it was a monumental day back then, and it's a monumental day today, as we recognize the need for more diversity in our leadership, and I thank you, God, for the path this church has taken to get us there, and though fearful and difficult it has been, we got here, and I'm so thankful for that, God, but I ask God that this isn't the end, that this isn't just it, that that our church is not just satisfied with having me ordained as pastor, that we continue to invite voices, all voices of all minorities to come and speak and that we can value their voice, their perspective and value what they bring to the table. I pray, God, that as we walk out this morning that you show in us who you are and our image, our character in you, God. I pray that you show us all how we are relevant to this, God. In your name we pray, amen.